1: Katrina McPherson's Scottish Downtown Abbey series, the Dandy Gilver series, serves up a hedonistic mix of history, black comedy and murder, all in elegant prose certain to appeal to fans of Evelyn Waugh, Agatha Christie and Nancy Mitford. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and today Katrina talks about why she loves the golden age of British mystery and how her new heroine, Lexi Campbell, interprets the California dream through Scottish eyes. But before we talk to Katrina, just a reminder that the show notes for this Binge Reading episode are available on the website thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find a full transcript of our discussion, plus links to Kat's website and books, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Katrina. Katrina. Hello there, Kat, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Jenny. Look, beginning at the beginning, which I always like to do, I see this as a narrative. Was there a a once-upon-a-time moment when you decided you wanted to write fiction? And if so, was there a catalyst for it?
2: Well, there was a a time when I was a young teenager, about 13 or 14, when I wanted to be a writer. That's what I wanted to do for a job. But it was... um, frowned upon I, I spoke to a careers advisor who who told me I was daft and um, that that wasn't possible and so I packed it away for a lot of years and then when I was 35 um i hated my job so much that that but the only thing I wanted to do instead of the job I was doing was write fiction and it came back then and at the age of 35 there was no one who could tell me I couldn't do it so I had a long long hiatus I got there in the end
1: Oh, Fantastic. Well, you've proven yourself extremely versatile. You've really very successfully conquered three different genres. You started out, I think, with the historical mysteries. Then you moved on to standalone dark thrillers. And your latest book is a contemporary, very humorous mystery series set in Northern California. We'll get to that a little later on. But let's start with Dandy Gilbert, your historical mystery. Now, she is a Scottish lady, I, I don't know quite whether she would be called an aristocrat in Scotland, but it's set in the 20s and 30s in a big country house, and it's reminiscent of um, Downton Abbey, really. So it's been described as perfect for fans of Evelyn Waugh and Nancy Mitford. I couldn't imagine a greater compliment than that. Oh, me neither. Um <laughs> how did you, Is I presume that is the first, you're now up to number 12, but I presume that is the first manuscript you finished. Um, how did you get started on that whole series?
2: Well, no, actually it's not. The first manuscript I finished was a modern uh, literary novel or, you know, just a, a novel. It wasn't in any particular genre. And I had, I finished it, And after I got 40 rejections, I put it away in a drawer and feeling a bit glum, thought, well, what will I do next? And my husband, Neil, suggested that as a palate cleanser just for fun, I should write something that I love with no thought of publication. And what I love was the golden age. It's not really the historical period because it's a completely fictitious, it's a a cultural space that's a bit of history and a lot of a writing tradition, you know, that golden age of British mysteries. She so said, write one of them. You know, everyone who writes them's dead. So write one of them and then then just for fun. Uh, so just for fun, I wrote the first Dandy Gilver uh, story because I love Dorothy Sayers and Agatha Christie and Nioh Marsh and Josephine Tay and Michael Innes and all that lot. Um, and as you say, I'm up to, I'm working on book 13 now. So my palate cleanser went very well indeed. I'm very pleased <laughs> <laughs>
1: They read as if you have personal knowledge of that of that time and that that class, but um, obviously you're not old enough to have had personal knowledge of it. But um, as the lady of the estate, Dandy follows, seems to follow anyway. All the class rules, at least at the beginning, she's raised by nannies and governesses, and she goes to Paris finishing school, and she marries more as a strategic um, move than than for romance. She looks really for a life of tea parties and good works. So how does she evolve over the 12 books? Uh, Oh, that's an interesting
2: question because I I am... I mean, I'm not old enough to remember that period, but when I started writing, which was in 2001, um, 1922, when the first book was started, was just about in living memory. You know, there were elderly people around me who remembered the 30s, certainly, before the war. Uh, certainly. And also, I was living in Scotland then, and it looked much the same. The buildings are made of big lumps of stone, and they're all still there. So, um, and I was steeped in the literature. And I did, I I was really grateful that you said that, that it it reads as if I've got knowledge of the time, because I didn't want it to be a historical novel, where the, the writer is here, looking back to then. I wanted it to be as though I was back then just looking around. Um, and so that's the time. As for the class, I am also, I'm not of that time, I'm most definitely not of that class, I'm a working class kid, um, social housing, comprehensive school, all that, so that is not my class, but Scotland's a very small country and I lived in the countryside and in a city, you know, people always talk about a city as being very um, cosmopolitan and people mix. And I think, well, no, not really, because cities are so big that you can find your tribe. You can have a very narrow band of people that you want to hang out with, and that's who you hang mm. out with. But in the countryside, mm. in a small village of maybe a thousand people, you just hang out with who's there. So everyone mixes in together. So, and I lived on a country estate. I lived on a on a shep- in a shepherd's house on a country estate with a laird and a lady in the big house. Um, and it was much the same. We were on first name terms because the social life is not as stratified now. Um, but I basically lived in a mini Downton Abbey life. Uh, Dandy, uh, but Dandy, yes, yes, she does start very, um, uh, what's the word, conventional. Uh, then she, you know, and she's yes. very easily shocked. And are a lot of pearl clutching in the early books and then inevitably because she 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 speaks to shopkeepers and she speaks to miners and uh, people who work in a circus and she goes to, into a convent so her her uh, milieu you know her range of people that she deals with widens and widens and widens until she's pretty unshockable now and then there's lots of fun because she shocks her husband because he's never moved he still lives in his small um Daily round, and and she, he finds her quite disgraceful. Now she's a lot of fun.
1: <laughs> yes, I'm I'm halfway through the last one published, a spot of toil and trouble, and also there is a hint that they really do need the money from her work. That although they may be of a certain class, they actually are are, are a little bit strapped for cash. And so he reluctantly has to go along with it. In fact, almost encourages her, doesn't he? Yes, he was. There was some fun in the early books when he didn't know. She kept it
2: quiet from him to start with. And he just assumed that she was having a dalliance with this young man who's the other half of Gilbert and Osborne, Alec Osborne. And that was okay as long as they were discreet. At that time and in that class, that was fine. She'd had her two sons And she could do what she wanted. Um, And so when he found out that it wasn't just an affair, that she was working as a detective, he was quite shocked. Um, And now he he tholes it. I I don't know if that's a word that's used in New Zealand, but he tholes it. He puts up with it um, and the money comes in very handy because they're land rich and cash poor.
1: Yes, yes. His,
2: His life's aim is to hand on the estate with exactly the same acreage as it had when he inherited it from his father. Um, and Dandy just buckets about the countryside with Alec, and has a jolly old time. Yes,
1: that setup is it's wonderful because you do suspect, or maybe she is having an affair with her detective partner. But it's quite clear in the book that there isn't anything like that going on. Not in a spot of toil and trouble, anyway. He's quite safe. He's actually, she's actually got a bit of mind to, to get him a wife somewhere. So yeah. I think she's waiting for the
2: boot boot to drop. You know, if if he would just get married, then she'd know the worst, you know, rather than have this feeling that at some point he's going to meet someone and if he falls desperately in love, then she's lost her best friend. I think British people tend to understand what the setup is. It's been readers in the US who will say, why don't they just get divorced? Why? Is she going to leave that stuffed shirt? Why don't they... Why don't they just get together? I think, oh, no, she's never going to, she would never do that. It would be such a, it would be such a day class A thing for Dandy to do, to you know, to, to, air so much dirty linen in public as to admit I am unhappy and I am not coping. Yeah, no, she, yeah. I don't think she'll do that.
1: Now, you gave up a promising academic career in um, quotes. I read that somewhere. I don't know if that was the same career as was making you feel miserable in your mid-30s, but um, you gave it up to write full time. Why did you choose mysteries? Uh, we've really covered the setting and period, and perhaps we have even covered that. You, you have been a long-term fan of those classic mysteries. Is that right? Well, there are other, you know, less highfalutin reasons. I mean, it was the same job, this promising
2: academic career. The promise was beginning to curdle by the time I left because I was so unhappy that I was really bad at it. Um, but the other good reason for writing about the 1920s is forensics haven't spoiled all the fun. And... Um, and you don't need to know so many things that I wouldn't personally enjoy having to find out. I don't really want to find out about a lot of uh, technical uh, crime cracking methodology. And also, well, not just the 20s, but but earlier than about 15 years ago, I think the mobile phone has ruined peril for people. People are just not in so much danger anymore. And then, you know, it, it gets a bit tiring when I was judging a literary award, I was judging one of the Edgars a few years ago and I thought, oh, I can't read another book where someone drops their phone in a puddle or loses it or forgets to charge it in chapter one <laughs> so that they can be in danger by the end of chapter two. So there are wonderful things about um, the 20s for writing crime then. And also, you you have to suspend the disbelief to let an amateur detective, private detective, solve a murder. I don't think it's ever happened but it happens all the time between the covers of these golden age stories so it doesn't feel like such a leap for for that to happen in in the 1920s as it does now not that I suspend disbelief for modern stories as well but that's my that you know there were there were those bonuses for writing about the 20s put it that way
1: yes yes now dandy is in the process now of being made into a tv series When are we likely to see it on screen? Is there there a finishing date in mind?
2: Well, it's somewhere between, it's not in development anymore, which is wonderful. It's been developed and it's now at the stage of trying to um, be sold and be commissioned and find a home. Um, And it's been rumbling on for such a long time. Uh, These things, they take forever and it's like a funnel. The things that actually end up on your screen at the end um, are a very, very few of them. So I'm now looking at it as, that would be nice if it happened, but I'm no longer holding my breath. Yes. We shall see. Because a couple of times, uh, someone has almost bought it and then said, oh, well, you know, the, if we stick to Agatha Christie, everybody knows what that is. You know, so, and I I I agree, because I adore, especially Miss Marple. well, and Poirot on the television. Um, you know what you're getting. So, fingers crossed but not breath held
1: yeah it does it annoy you when people think refer to it as the Scottish Downton Abbey is that why they were interested in it goodness me no I love it that was such
2: a happy timing I started writing it before Downton Abbey but um when I moved to America in 2010 uh my agent started trying to find an American publisher for the proper treatment of bloodstains just when America caught Downton Abbey fever. And that book was about Dandy going undercover as a lady's maid in a grand house. So the stars aligned. I'll never be sorry uh, about Downton Abbey because the timing was perfect. Um, and also uh, people were hungry for more of it. They loved Downton Abbey. I loved Downton Abbey. And so uh, they said, oh, well, here's something else that will give us more of that same um, tone and that same escapism. And... Um, with a little bit of history.
1: Yeah, it certainly does that. And then in the later stages of Dandy, as you say, you're now up to 13, you you embarked on a series of standalone dark thrillers. I think you've done five of those to date. What attracted you to that idea? Well, it it, it looks
2: that way. It it looks as if I, I established Dandy Gilbert and then I did this other thing. But actually, the, so the first one I ever wrote, as I said, was a standalone a literary novel but I then rewrote it uh maybe about three years ago as a crime novel and I'd also written two novels that that two other novels that weren't crime novels um so I've written I've written 12 I've published 12 Dandy Gilvers and eight but one of them I wrote twice so it's nine of these other ones so they've always been more meshed you know one a dandy and then something else a dandy and then something else um but the first one was because I got an idea for a story that just wouldn't work in the 20s. I wanted to tell this one particular story and it, it was a modern story. So I decided to to write a modern novel. And oh, such relief. You, you know, I've not got the series character, so I've got to make up the whole world, but I'm not on anachronism watch all the time. You know, I'm not always wondering, will, would that exist? Would they say this? Would this be invented? Would the car have a rear view mirror? You know, would that house have electricity? So it, it does feel like relaxation to write these modern stories.
1: <laughs> yeah. And now you've got Lexi Campbell, your heroine of the news series. Lexi is a Scottish marriage guidance counsellor. Who, who weds a groovy California dentist and discovers she's, as they say, bitten off more than she can chew. Um, you, you've been living in California since 2010, I believe. And uh, I was interested in your earlier comment about Americans not quite getting the English approach in terms of matrimonial affairs in the 20s. And I kind of did wonder whether Lexi was your um, almost statement, okay, so now I'm ready to really write something for my U.S. audience. I'm acclimatised, I'm naturalised, and I'm ready to translate Scots for the Yanks. Is there any grain of that in it?
2: Yeah, yeah, pretty much. That's very perspicacious, actually. It didn't start that way. It started from uh, one of my American publishers saying, we want something else. We want something uh, light, bright and sparkling, to quote the great Jane Austen, and we want something that's uh, got your Scottish voice, but we want something set in the UK. What would you like to write? And I went away and thought, I just like to write something that's just fun, uh, that's just funny, um, and floated this idea of a marriage guidance therapist uh, who finds herself a fish out of water in California. She's living in a motel called the Last Ditch Motel. Quite quickly in the first book, she moves in there and she solves crimes and they went for it. And then that's when I realised this is my chance to show, you know, in a, with a spirit of great affection, uh, but to show the, my US friends what they look, or California friends anyway, what they look like f- f- through Scottish eyes. Uh, so looking through Lexi's eyes, I, I remembered all the things that struck me struck me as bizarre and incomprehensible and just funny when I first arrived here. Things that I didn't know anything about, like, um, so something like the rules for leaving a party that are so much part of your culture, um, but you don't know that they are. So when we had our first party here, someone about 10 o'clock stood up and said, I've got to get going. Um, In fact, I don't think I realised how it started, but all of a sudden everyone left in a pack and I was almost in tears. And as we waved them off, Neil and I, my husband and I, turned to each other and said, what happened? What did you say? What went wrong? What's what's wrong? Because we didn't know that that's how American people leave parties. When someone breaks the party up, everyone leaves. And I thought, well, what do we do? And I realized that what we do, and I, this was knowledge that I used, but I didn't have this knowledge, you know, in the front of my brain. Someone leaves and then not less than 10 minutes but not more than 20 minutes later the next person gets to leave and then not fewer or less than 10 minutes and not more than 20 minutes after that the third lot of people get to leave so you know if you're trying to leave a party and someone else pips you you've missed your chance and you're stuck which is completely bonkers but that is that is how we do it and then I had to learn because we ended up staying on at parties when everyone else had left and not realizing that 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 we should go. So things like that, they're harmless, but they're um, they are very striking.
1: That's so interesting because in New Zealand we do exactly what you do in Scotland. It's probably, exactly. yeah. isn't that yeah. funny? It's an ingrained thing that we've obviously inherited down the down the truck. Yeah. <laughs> so if everybody just stood up in a wad and left your house, you'd
2: think, well, what's gone wrong with this party? Yeah, I'm used to it now. And also, if people bring something to a party, which they do a lot, because there's a lot of potlucks, they take it away again. That seemed like a swizz. You know, people, (laughs) a contribution to the party eats. If it doesn't, all eat, they wrap it up in Tupperware and take it away. Because I found myself thinking, oh, that looks good, but I'm full. Never mind, I'll have that for lunch tomorrow. And I thought, where's (laughs) it gone? We don't do that. You bring something to a party in Scotland, it's gone forever. You have to tuck in while you're there because you're leaving it behind.
1: Totally, yeah. So do you do that
2: in New Zealand as well? Do you leave, if you...
1: No, we would always leave things, yes, uh, as well. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Look, your tagline for Lexi is, quotes, the lighter side of the dark underbelly of the California dream. And Lexi, I must um, reassure readers, is a really hilarious read. But you do obviously have a a little bit of a serious... um, goal in mind with it as well mixing social commentary with the satire and mystery uh, is that how you felt you were approaching it
2: yes i think so i think i wanted it to be about the real california so it's not because when people hear you know when people back home here i've moved to california you know, palm trees come up in their eyes and they go oh wow you know and i usually say did you ever see that film erin Brockovich? because that was also California. California is a big place with a lot of different um, landscapes in it and a lot of different communities. So I wanted to write about the real California where I live. And I also wanted to write as an immigrant, which I am, but an immigrant who knows that my immigrant experience is so cushy, you know, I have such an easy time of it. I've been welcomed with such open arms. And obviously, it's not that way for everyone. So I wanted to write about the the whole of California and everyone that I've met here, um, but the lighter side. I mean, everything everything's played for last, which I was a bit worried about, because how do you, you know, you put comedy in with, A, murder, and also, B, um, people whose lives are very tough. But I gave it to some early readers, and... Um, I gave it to a very diverse bunch of. Well, I didn't give it to early readers. It was the die was cast by them, but they got the advanced copies, and uh, and everyone said, "Oh no, the, it's warm." I think if you you know if you're laughing but with warmth, and you're laughing at absurdities, you're not laughing at people, uh, then yeah. it's okay. So uh, I haven't had any. I haven't had any um, uh, complaints about laughing at America, no. especially.
1: yet. Yeah. few. Yeah. That's great, yeah. Now you've got a PhD in linguistics, which I find rather um sort of intimidating. So I, I really should be introducing introducing you as Dr. Katrina or maybe Dr. Cat. But tell me, is there one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that's been the secret to your success?
2: Well, it's not the linguistics PhD, that's for sure. That's got a few there. It's got some benefits in that. A dandy, I know that I don't speak the same language as Dandy and I can't speak the same language as Dandy, but I know what it is that I don't know. So I can put a little thing on for the proofreader to say, check the subjunctive here or "or check her, you know, check that this is English-English, not working-class Scottish-English. But that's not worth nine years of study. Was um, so there anything I've done in my writing career? I think, I think, ironically, not thinking of it in terms of career, I think that writing what I love, not not looking at the market and not trying to hit a market and not trying to be too um, too canny about what I'm doing and just writing what I love with my fingers crossed and thinking if this doesn't work out, I'll do something else. But if you do it, if you write from your gut, I think it shows. Even though I write lots of different things, um, none of them are pot boilers. None of them are. I'm quite hard to offend, but when people say "churning out," you know, people say you've you've churned out another, or you've. The worst thing I ever heard was someone said you've extruded another unit of product. I thought, wow, you're a nice lady.
1: Was that another writer?
2: No, it was a reader.
1: Gosh, yeah, that sounds really quite a sort of. Um cynical way (laughs) to. I say it was a fan not
2: a fan of mine it was at a large it was a large event but I thought that's that's quite a choice of words isn't it
1: yeah yeah yeah
2: like a sausage machine (laughs) so I think write what I love and also start at the right time I started in 2001 and it is harder now I mean I know that lucky so that my advice is invent a time machine and go back
1: you mean that there's just a lot more writers out there doing it with with indie publishing
2: yeah more writers less money um yes yeah uh, since 2008 since the big recession and also uh to a uh, many more uh competitors for people's attention because of the streaming netflix yes. and box and yeah. i will hail brit yeah. box because i can watch yeah. coronation street again but it does distract from uh reading
1: yes Look, I see on your website that you've got quite a few nice iterations of the world of Gilverton, Dandy's world. You introduced the estate and the people who work on it, etc. And I often like to ask with some of these books because people get lost in them and then they imagine if there was somewhere they could go to recapture that world or at least to see where that world took place. In in Dandy Gilver's case, is there a kind of TripAdvisor magical mystery tour that you could suggest people would do in Scotland that could take them close to her route?
2: Absolutely, because most of the, all of the castles and big houses, no, Dandy's own house is fictional, but all of the other castles and great houses and towns and streets are real. So I could, what a great idea, I should do that. Um, write them all Write them all down. Briefly, the house that she's in, in the proper treatment of bloodstains when she's undercover as a lady's maid, um, exists. It's called the Georgian House and it's open to the public. It's owned by the National Trust for Scotland. And so the rooms are all there and you can go into the attics and the kitchens. It's there. And the, the second novel, which is called The Buryman's Day, is set in the village where I was born, South Queen's Ferry, and where my father was born as well and still lives. My mum and dad still live in the house where I was born. And it's all still there. It's a um, it's the Queen that the Queen's Ferry is named after. It was Queen Margaret, the, the wife of King Malcolm. So it's a very old, the middle of it, it's a very old um, town. That's all still there. You can go and walk along the street and see, and you can go on the second Friday in August and see the Burry Man, see a man Covered from head to toe in burdock seeds, lumbering around looking like a monster all day in in that village. I always loved them when I was a child, and I, you know, I still try and uh, see them if I'm over there in the summer. So, there's that was very lightly fictional. Like oh, though, but I did the castle in the Bury Man's Day, actually is in Galloway, and I dragged it a hundred miles north. And I once went to a library event where a woman came in quite hot and dishevelled because she'd been looking for it all day. But in the book, the bit in the book where I say the facts and fictions is always at the end and she was only halfway through, so she didn't know that she was looking in the wrong place. She'd been trampling through muddy fields and being snagged by brambles for hours trying to find this castle She's quite cross.
1: <laughs> Look, I think if, if you ever do, do get it to screen, you definitely will need a guide because people do like to go and follow those things. It gives them an excuse for an itinerary. <laughs> no, I'm serious, Jenny. I, I am writing it down. I hope you can't hear the
2: scraping noises. That should have the um, visit, the you know, visit the locations yeah. on my website. I can easily, I can avoid all kinds of real work by doing that. Thank you. <laughs>
1: Just turning to uh, your reading, this this podcast is called The Joys of Binge Reading, and it was partly sparked by that phenomenon that there is these days of people binge reading. When they read, they do sometimes find an author and want to read everything that she's written. And I'm sure you've um, benefited from that with Dandy. what do you like to binge read? I think perhaps we know some of it with the golden age of of British mystery, but is there anything else that, or anyone you'd like to particularly mention as a favourite for binge reading?
2: Yes, because the the problem with binge reading is you, you. I'm pretty up to date with the golden age, really. There's not there's not anyone. I sometimes reread. Uh-huh. Yeah. But my latest discovery, and I don't know how I didn't know this author, was Ellie Griffiths. Oh. And I. And I wrote the hat. Oh, what's it called now? The house at Sand's End. The house at Sea's End. I think it's called the house at Sea's End. And thought this is fantastic. How did I not know that this that these books existed? I knew her name. Uh, I've never met her. And I I did. I just consumed them. I read the first one, and then I bought all the rest. And I just I did just sit on the couch and gulp them down. And I'm going to have to read them again now because I read them too fast. But I just adore them. They're set in a wonderful part of the world in Norfolk, in the southeast of England. And there's a um, she is an archaeologist. The the heroine of the books is an archaeologist, and wonderful characters and very atmospheric. Really chilly weather. I love them. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, I have another one. Dorothy Whipple. She wrote eight novels between the wars. And they were forgotten. I don't know why they were forgotten. They're fantastic. But Persephone Press in London have reissued all of them, and they've just reissued the eighth one. And they're domestic dramas. Um, they're quiet, but they're deafening at the same time. If anyone hasn't read Dorothy Whipple, there are eight, two volumes of short stories and a wonderful novel. So it's Whipple, W-H-I-P-P-L-E,
1: Oh that's wonderful. Thank you. That those, those both sound great to look into. Look, circling back to the end because we're now coming to the end of our time. At this stage in your career, if you were doing it all again, what would you change if anything?
2: I would change something the two books that I wrote that were not crime novels, I'd give them a nudge and put them into the crime genre. So there was one that was a time travel keeper which I called Save Elvis, but the publisher called it Growing Up Again. Um, and then there was a Straight Up, which was a, a caper, again, about a, a liar. Um, and they were twisty and there were puzzles in them, but they weren't they weren't crime novels and they were published as women's fiction, uh, which was a bit of a death knell. And so that's what I would do. I would still write the stories and they'd be basically the same stories, but I'd just give them a shunt so that they were in the crime fiction genre because I, I love this the community and I love the fact that you can get away with absolutely anything. In but Mystery readers, crime fiction readers are so, um, well they're hungry for the novels but they're also very forgiving of experiment and I'm, I'm very happy here, that's what I would do.
1: That's great. I think. Have you held a position in Sisters in Crime? Are you do, did. I read that somewhere. Have you been involved in writer organisations?
2: Yeah, I was the president. I was the national president of Sisters in Crime, um, uh-huh. year twenty fifteen, which was just. I still don't understand why they um, they gave me that honor, and it was an honor. I I'm I really had a lot of admiration for the organisation. I loved what they did and I thought, it and now it needs to widen because women authors are not the only group of authors who need a leg up and a champion. And so I can, I'll, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to, to talk about um, LGBTQ authors and authors of colour and writers with disabilities for a year. So I'm glad I did it, but oof, I'm not a natural committee person and I'm, I'm, I am can't be the boss of anything. I'm the fourth of four daughters. I have never been in charge of anything in my life because I've got three big sisters. So it was very strange to be to be the boss. And I wasn't the boss because there's a CEO, there's a paid CEO. She's the real boss. I was just a figurehead. But it was great fun. And, and worthwhile, I'm proud of it. I am proud of it, but it nearly killed me.
1: that's great look what is next for katrina the writer have you got some what new projects are you working on now
2: oh yeah well i'm writing dandy number 14 right now dandy 13 comes out uh, in the uk and new zealand i think later this year and a new standalone is out in new zealand new zealand and what's that other place oh yes australia you've got in there first Go to my grave, it's called, it's out there, but it doesn't come out in the UK and the US until the autumn. And I'm so I'm working on Dandy Gilbert number 14, I'm about halfway through, and then I've got an edit, I've got 300 pages of a, a draft sitting, I'm looking at it right now, it's sitting there, sneering at me, um, scowling at me rather. And uh, I'm going to do that, and then I'll go back to Lexi, and as long as I don't just combust I'm going to keep doing that one two three one two three
1: and Lexi is Lexi two done yet
2: yes Lexi two's done yep she's she's done and dusted and it's in at the um at the editor and I got an edit note back I got an email back from Terry Bischoff the editor of Midnight Inc that said it's perfect so
1: that was nice (laughs) that was lovely (laughs) I mean, the
2: editor, the line editor, no doubt will, will not just send that email as well. But as far as the structure goes and as far as the, you know, the plot works and the tone's okay. So that was, that was the best email I've ever had in 17 years of working with publishers <laughs>
1: that's lovely because it indicates that you've really nailed the series in terms of where you're going with it so it's quite a confidence builder isn't it yeah yeah absolutely
2: probably never to be repeated but I enjoyed it when I got it yeah. now look where can readers find you online oh well good luck avoiding me I'm I'm online I'm at uh, com uh, my website, where, where the, the Gilberton stuff is. And I'm on Twitter and Facebook as an author. At uh, Twitter, my name's too long, so I'm at Katrina McPee. And I also, I blog with two groups of uh, wonderful bloggers. One of them is called Seven Criminal Minds, and one of them is called Fam Fatale. And so probably about two or three times a month, I write a little article about something, sometimes writing, sometimes not. And for them,
1: and of course, we will um, we will have it everywhere, so you'll, it'll be obvious. But your Katrina, I might add, for those who are not so familiar with the Scottish spelling, is C A T R I O N A, isn't it? Like Catriona is probably how some people would like to. Yeah. Um, Say it, but it is actually Katrina. yeah That's why I made Lexi.
2: Lexi Campbell's experience is mine, but dialed up to eleven because Lexi is spelled L E A G S A I D H, yeah. which is how you spell Lexi in Scots Gaelic. <laughs> so, I've given her, I've given her an even harder time than than I've had.
1: <laughs> that's that's for sure. <laughs>
2: yeah. Oh. Yeah, Katrina with an O, that's it
1: but Katrina, look, thank you so much for your time It's been wonderful to talk I have so enjoyed it And I, I'm sure your work is just going to power on It's wonderful Oh, I hope so And I, I, I've loved
2: it, thank you very much It's lovely to get the chance to stop and look back and think Yes, it's not all been typing and weeping Some of it's fun <laughs> This is fun And all the best to you too with yours And um, I'll wait and see Thank you so much
0: Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading.
1: The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie. Audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes he's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter I think you'd agree that his voice is both lighthearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.